This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wood, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal Cast and YouTube. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of the MTG Cabal Cast. Uh, joining me this week in Thirsty's place is Zieva, owner and sole proprietor of Wandering Wolf Games and Toys, a TCG vendor based in Vermont with me. Well, not with me, but in the same state. Hi, everybody. So, uh, Zieva is actually somebody I've known for the better part of, I think it's uh, 15 years now. Yeah. So, uh, we both were playing Magic right around 2004, so mirrored and block into uh, Kamigawa, and I think between here and our uh, various other interests, we've basically lived similarly close to one another for a while. Yep, um, even when I went to Kentucky for Troll and Toad. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, not only have you decided to open your own company, but uh, thankfully you're uh, a patron of us who's been a, a also a welcoming contributor. But one of the questions I wanted to know, and this is actually something I just don't know overall, is you know how you got started with Magic. How did you come to find oh. the game and start playing? Well, it was a mutual friend of ours, uh, Judge Ben Klein, who got me into the game. Because um, he knew from my parents, who uh, go to the same synagogue, mm -hmm. that I played Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon. So Ben suggested that we get into Magic, since I was complaining about having no one to play the other two games with locally. Mm -hmm. And so I got my first booster pack at, of Onslaught at Walmart in Connecticut on a trip to visit my grandfather. Okay. And got, like, it was one of those weird things where they give you a booster of a current set and one random old card. Yes. And my random old card was Hope Charm, and I thought it was so cool. And my oh. rare was Cover of Darkness. Okay, nice. Yeah. It's interesting how you remember that the first couple of cards. Like, I remember End Trials Feaster was one of my first Onslaught rares as well. Like, I've mentioned it on the yeah. cast before. I can't not open that card. <laughs> now, now I, I remember from way back when, too, one of the things that kind of drove your interest in the game was the Weatherlight Crew storyline. Oh, yeah. Right? I can't believe you remember that. That's impressive. Yeah, like, you were a huge fan of uh, all the, the cast of characters. Did you wind up collecting them at some point, too? I did, yeah. I got a bunch of them from our, another mutual friend, Jerry Muir. I traded him a Chrome Mox, and he gave me the value in Weatherlight Crew, yeah. which was which was at the time most of the crew. <laughs> yeah, I think at this point it's just like, no, it was a Raft Capuchin the red white uncommon from dominaria and, oh yeah um what's his name i picked him once the the golgari fungus oh white slime slime foot. Foot? yeah i'm actually trying working on work by working on i mean i have the idea of making a sisay weather like captain deck with just all of them in it oh okay. for fun. uh but yeah oh yeah and so oh that's right because sisay has the five color uh, version with the activated ability, right? Yep, from yeah. Modern Horizons. Yeah, I mean, 15 years of passion, and here we are. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there was a bit of time between uh, when you first started playing and when you became more interested in vending, eventually moving down with a bunch of us to work for Troll and Toad. What kind of pushed you into that? How did you get started with that kind of vending itch, so to speak? Well... At the time, I was, like, 19, mm -hmm. and I had graduated high school, barely, and I didn't really feel any connection to Vermont yet, and uh, 
one vet, same friend of ours, was like, hey, a bunch of us are going to Troll and Toad to work there. And the guy who recruited me asked me if I knew anyone else. Do you want to go? I just snapped it off because I was like, still, I don't know the right way to phrase it, but I was just really unhappy living here. Yep. So I thought a change of scenery might do it. And then it turned out, uh, in the long run, I hated Kentucky so much, but that's a tangent. Yeah, story and, uh, for another yeah. time. Yeah. It, it's all downhill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, at that point in time, it was actually, uh, much like the rest of the country, the, the economy was struggling in the area. It was just hard to find jobs anywhere that weren't in the service industry. Yeah. And, was... Yeah, even, yep. even though we were blessed with two or three game stores in the area at the time there was just no real action in the industry so um it made more sense to move into something a lot larger than yourself and a lot larger in the industry than just one of the random shops in the area yeah so uh now there was a a, a break in time between uh, when you came back to uh, Vermont and when you started vending uh, again so along the same lines what brought you back to vending after coming back to Vermont well what brought me back to Vermont was just that aforementioned uh, unenjoyment of Kentucky to put it nicely <laughs> and parting ways with Troll and Toad once I left them it was like well I really don't want to be here so I'll just go back to go back home mm-hmm and um yeah so i mean that brought you back here and there were still a number of stores in the area that were all selling singles at the time i mean what made you think that you could either uh do it the same or or better really what kind of was that push for you to branch out and be the owner and sole proprietor of a company in the area like what was what was that like you know uh, at the time, I just kind of had the desire to prove it to myself that I could do it. Mm-hmm. And also, I wanted to kind of provide what I did, a service I didn't see as totally provided yep. in the area at the time, with like just being more competitive with uh, prices as far as singles go. Yep. I, I can definitely understand that. Oh. You know, if you didn't exist in the in the state of Vermont as a whole in this time, you you wouldn't really know that a lot of the stores in the air, while they had singles, the selection wasn't the greatest, uh, be it for standard, modern, etc. It was basically whatever was opened in the initial rush, and then whatever people would want to sell in at a given rate. But the rates in cash or in credit weren't as good as selling online. Uh, either to a vendor or to another player directly. So the market was kind of thin. Yeah. So an additional service provided was that you were then going to be able to offer a wider variety of singles to the players in the area. Exactly. So I, I I think this is actually something that's important for a lot of people to note, is that if you don't have the ability to put cards in cases for consignment, you know, in somebody else's store, like uh, other individuals do, then you have to look at finding your niche and working within that, finding exactly what you said, 
an area that isn't served and begin working on that, building your reputation, you know, and upping your efforts to make sure that people know who you are and what you provide. Mm. And I think this is a lesson that a lot of people skip over when they think, oh, I could be in my own company and travel or be in my own company and do it locally or backpack grind. It's this right. next step is you have to figure out what services you can provide to people in your area that make you stand out from the established stores or the established grinders, etc. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a really important lesson. And I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that so quickly. You, you knew immediately that you had to provide something that, that wasn't there. And I think another uh, lesson for people, uh, a question that we have is throughout the existence of uh, Wandering Wolf Games, you've been the sole employee. So the money that you make has to be rolled back into the company yeah. to pick up more product. But you also have to make some kind of living off of this as well. Uh, and obviously, you've been doing this for a number of years. So what happened at the beginning of uh, Wandering Wolf Games is different than what happens now. Uh, is there yeah. a difference in strategy in regards to how you split your profits and you know, what you take versus what goes back into the company? Uh, well, to be honest, the beginning of Wandering Wolf Games wasn't very profitable because that was right when I came out as trans. Mm -hmm. So luckily for me, there weren't, there wasn't too much thinking about the profits and how to move them around or whatever because they just didn't really exist yet. Yeah. So I kind of had to wait until I got the whole Fiferino together yes. before that. And nowadays, I just, well, prior to this, I was working at another local game store. Mm -hmm. So I used my knowledge of my expenses at the time when I was employed by them to budget out how much I take out from a business and how much I put back in. Okay. Yeah. And um, so you've basically been able to find that balance. But how long did it, do you think it took you to really kind of key in on? how much you needed to live versus how much the company needed to live? Uh, I think I'm still learning about Fed as I go, mm -hmm. but it was like, let's see. I was floating on the last few paychecks from my previous job for a while, mm -hmm. and then it was like, I think uh, one to two months of just kind of figuring that out. It's, okay. it's I mean, I say figuring it out, but it was just weird the way it happened because the way collections fell. Yes. So on some months, I would be like, okay, I need to like tighten things up because I've got this collection coming. And other months, I would be like, I sold the collection. I can pay myself a little more. If yes. That makes sense. Yes. No, it, it does. And I, that's never something that, you know, uh, Jason and I really, we talked about because on top of, uh, our endeavors in MTG Finance, we have, you know, jobs that pay us for, for you know, so we yeah. always have that baseline salary, and I think this is really good for people to learn is that it's not smooth sailing if this is your in regards to uh, steady income. Definitely, there, there's yeah. income to happen, but it is going to be variable. Uh, and related to this is in the time you've been doing Wandering Wolf after you, you've been able to, kind of craft a life that you enjoy so to speak after the process of, of coming out and uh, everything else that goes with that uh, there have been a number of fee changes in uh, various platforms 
did that really yeah. kind of put a wrench in things? We we talked about the TCG player fee structure is kind of the biggest one. Um, PayPal fees are kind of sneaky. They they change without a lot of notice or a lot of uh, really pomp and circumstance. Yeah. Um, the TCG player fee didn't really affect me yet because I never really got into the sealed or direct market as of right now. It's something I've been looking into, but going direct or like, what's the thing? Being a pro seller mm-hmm. is when it would affect you, I think. And okay. I have talked to them and they seem uh, adamant on me either having 3,000 or something cards on inventory or... Or having a brick and mortar. Got Neither it. one of those things are true for me right now. Mm-hmm. So right now the TCG fee change kind of just went over my yeah. head. And uh, yeah, the fees on various other things are a pain to keep up with. But yeah. it's kind of just comes with the territory. Yeah, yeah. I, and it's understandable. I thought the MTG finance world was basically shook from that announcement. But a lot of people didn't realize it would not affect them. Yeah. As a rank one through four vendor. Exactly. Um, I remember talking to you and being very worried about it at the time because yeah. I had just hit four and I was like, oh crap, is it all going to crash down? Yeah, and it took Jason and I a, a long time to really kind of parse it out. And luckily enough, he has contacts with uh, TCG direct vendors and we were able to kind of hook into some of the other backend information to pull out what really nice. changed for different types of utilization of their services. So, you have the Crystal Commerce side of things, which provides uh, a hook into TCG Player, and that was one set of fees. But then there's a service, um, Bidwicket, that powers a number of stores like Strike Zone, oh, and they okay. get hit with a different type of fee for utilizing the API. And it was really those two things that got affected by uh, the TCG Player API. But a lot of people, sorry, uh, fees, but a lot of people in the sphere didn't notice that at first or hadn't put it all together because it was a very deep dive to even figure that much out. Right, I hadn't even remembered that. But one of, the, one of the hidden things about TCG player is that sometimes you you incur an interesting set of fees going from rank one to four because you have to be both competitive on pricing and shipping. Yeah. Do you remember what it was like trying to go through those ranks to get to four? Like what? It was. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, just in regards to both pricing your cards and your shipping amount. Do you remember how you kind of leveraged that? It was a pain in the butt back then. Like just having to maintain my margins and also make the sales to mm-hmm. unlock rank four to have full functionality of the site. Mm-hmm. Luckily I had a good starting point with a collection I bought from a friend that allowed me a little bit more wiggle room than yeah. I would have had otherwise to make those numbers sort of line up for me. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, I don't think it was when you came back, but you had listed a bunch of, uh, fetch lands kind of a couple months before pioneer and historic were announced and they were, yeah, you know, a little bit below the, the next listing, or enough below to the next listing to basically be the cheapest listing. Yep. But you yeah. had your buffer on those already, correct? That's what you're but, saying. But you were, you yeah, had enough yeah. in them. Yeah. I, I follow. Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. Did you ever have to play with your shipping amount? I remember that's something that I had to do to get a lot of early sales to get to rank four. Yeah. it's uh, It was kind of a pain just figuring out how to price things with the shipping in mind. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I know I, I, got, I got hoisted uh, a number of times, but I knew it was going to happen with uh, free shipping because that was kind of the trick when I was doing uh, TCG Player was to make it 
appealing for somebody to buy from a low-level store. Right. Offering free shipping and then them, quote-unquote, shopping at your store. Basically, looking at your entire inventory was the way to go. Right. I don't. I feel like at the time, I wasn't allowed to have free shipping as okay. a level. I think I had to unlock that, if I remember right. I think so. Uh, it was yeah. like somewhere between 99 cent and free shipping was the way to, to factor all my prices. And I remember somebody basically, when him, the Turok, was only a card from Homelands, they cleaned me out of like all my hymns at every, uh, every art. art and price point. Because as long as as long as they paid whatever the default shipping amount was they were able to get the all of them at a little bit above buy list oh and then either relist them in their store or put them uh, on tcg player or in their cases for more and make a profit on that yeah that was just one of the things that i knew was going to happen from like small store experience when i when i talk to people about listing on tcg gotcha but it was the cost of quote-unquote building rating there yeah. yeah, I didn't have the quantities at the time for anything like that to really get me, but yeah, I don't really have too much knowledge to share on this front, unfortunately. It was just adjusting my price down to accommodate for the forced shipping they had me put on there. Yeah. That no, makes sense? It does, it does. So that, that's why I think this is one of those things we we need to talk about because you have recent experience with this yeah it's not something that that we talk about a lot and it's good to know that if you're going to start small this is something you have to deal with you know you have to game the tcg player system to get your rating up especially when you're buying the things yeah so like you have to factor that into your margin otherwise you'll just get like like you'll break even or lose money on the thing if you don't factor in their fees and the shipping exactly and this is why you know, Jason and I like to harp on this is because this is very real to profit margins. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I follow now. Yeah. In the meantime, yeah. though, things have become a little more convenient in regards to collection buying. You know, before, you were basically scouring Craigslist before Facebook Marketplace was as big as it was. Yeah. And so it became very difficult up here to collection buy and know you're going to resell on TCG Player at a profit because of all the fees and uh, generally speaking what the quality of a collection is up here compared to what it is elsewhere your margins are going to be very thin yes definitely yeah. um, so uh, the last question for uh, this segment of the podcast that I have and this is another one we like to harp on all the time is uh, balancing your time yeah uh, as, as a vendor in any capacity you know you always have travel time your business time and uh you know your personal time as a sole proprietor you're one person running everything top to bottom have you learned anything over the years about how to balance your time better i say better like you're doing it wrong but you're not you know yeah i follow um well recently i've just sort of learned i guess i've been practicing just doing things in batches and scheduling based around shipping days because i'm able to like ship every other day so then i have the other days to focus on like different parts of a business or personal stuff Mm -hmm. and i don't have it all figured out like some sort of master schedule or anything i'm still like messing it up screwing it up and figuring it out as i go oh yeah yeah but the big takeaway for me has been just having the bare minimum of a schedule like Mm -hmm. and just building off of that 
because if I don't have a foundation, it becomes a lot harder to do anything else, if that makes sense. It does. It, it sounds very similar to learning how to work from home full time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, I guess with uh, even a, a light schedule, have you kind of noticed a trending in the marketplaces you use to acquire cards? So for instance, if you're looking at Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, do you know that oh, a lot of people like to put up their collections over the weekend compared to the week, or is there not really a flow like that? If there is one, it's not one I've noticed yet, okay. but it's definitely something to keep an eye out for, I think. Okay. Yeah. And so when you're working for the company, you know, in that scheduled time, what exactly are you doing? Is it like, is it acquisitions, repricing, uh, reselling, like everything every day or every, you know, when you have it scheduled or do you have different schedules for different days to handle different things? Um, it's a little bit different per day. Like some days I'll, I'll schedule a buy and meet with someone because mm -hmm. I don't have a store for them to come to. So I just have to go and meet them at like a coffee shop or something. Yeah. And then I kind of fit for repricing and looking for new stuff around that. Okay. Yeah. So you manage a number of, of games for uh, both uh, acquisitions and resale. Uh, I, I've seen in the cases Pokemon, I've seen Yu-Gi-Oh, Magic, obviously, um, and uh, Dragon Ball Super because people are starting to play it up here. Uh, when you're repricing and, and listing, it, it's everything all at once, or do you kind of break it? Like, okay, th these couple of hours are for Magic, then we move to Pokemon, then we move to Yu-Gi-Oh, or... I usually do it by, like, which things are going to move around the most, if that makes sense. Do you mean, like, velocity? Price -wise. Oh, price-wise, okay. Like, for Magic, I'll do the standard stuff first, and then, um, like, if I have newer Pokemon, that stuff, mm -hmm. and newer Yu-Gi-Oh, that stuff, and then sort of just loop back around with the things that are, like, first edition Yu-Gi-Oh cards from the first few sets. Those are, like, the equivalent of of like old school yeah. magic cards they just have collector's value so, so they, they don't tend to flux too much yeah and if it is it's only by a couple percent so if it goes up you're yeah. fine if it goes down you're fine you're never too worried okay yeah that that make that makes a lot of sense and you know when it comes to uh your time and events like uh, not just like the moto ptqs because those fire like every day now but uh weekend events you know you 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 look at so many categories you know, you have Pokemon, Nats, Regionals, any events there, Yu-Gi-Oh, Magic, etc. Uh, when it comes time for the end of a weekend, and there have been several events in a row, are you immediately on top of looking at results to see what, what did well so you know you're going to have to reprice during the week, or do you just kind of take it as it comes and look on Monday? Um, right now, I've mostly been taking it as it comes. It's been tougher for me to stay on top of things with winter and seasonal affective disorder yeah. but it's definitely one of my goals going forward to be more on top of that specifically and just be more on top of finding the lists and getting a real understanding of why these things are going to be more expensive for the non-magic games Okay, because that's one thing I was missing when I was working for Troll and Toad was I knew the prices very well but I didn't know why this thing was like worth more money generally yeah and you were also siloed too in the magic category right so the other games were kind of wall gardened off right? yeah just... okay 
so uh, we like to talk about you know MTG top eight and MTG stocks as the way to figure out what's going on with Magic, and you can tie those together pretty easily. Aside from TCG Player for prices, is there anywhere else you look to see what's going on with uh, Yu-Gi-Oh Pokemon and Dragon Ball? Uh, I actually use Troll and Toad a lot mm -hmm. because their website has. I might just be using TCG Player wrong and be missing something, but I can't type in the little code at the bottom of a Pokemon card that's like 16 slash 48 on TCG Player and pull up the exact Pokemon I want, but I can on Troll and Toad. Well, yeah, that's insanely useful for, for so, that. And the same thing yeah. on Yu-Gi-Oh, the set codes as well. Yeah. Exactly. And so like, if I'm just going through like a collection and I want to double-check something mm -hmm. to see if I need to investigate further, I use Troll and Toad to see what they're selling it for and then if it if their number is like if it's not for random evo seller who sells the thing for ten dollars no matter what then yeah. i investigate further <laughs> okay uh are, is there a, like an mtg top eight kind of resource that you use for the other games as well i know super is just starting to take off so i don't know if there's a resource like that yet but i assume it, there's still something for pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh. uh not that i've found yet okay. which is likely just uh negligence on my part but I haven't had the card flow in those games like I have in Super or Magic recently. Okay. But I have Shenron's Lair is the site I found for Dragon Ball Super, mm -hmm. which is uh, sort of looks like an unrefined goldfish right now. Okay, okay. So at, it's so you can get deck lists and prices there kind of thing? They're deck lists, and they're, they're all user-submitted, which is the downside. Oh, okay. Well, that just means that there might be no automated resource yet. Like, we have the, the yeah. list coming in from Moto. Okay. Yeah. That, that's still a decent resource for anybody getting into the game, though. Like, looking at lists like that is still important. It seems... Definitely. For anybody who's never played Super, my basic understanding is that you basically build a deck you like, you want around characters you like. And that's kind of like that's... the casual way to play. Yeah. So. That's my understanding of a casual way to play. I've been looking into more competitive decks, and it feels similar to uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! in the way the archetypes are kind of built into the cards, like baked into the cards, the way they all interact together, if that makes sense. Yeah, you you would, you know, your Synchro Summons deck was all Synchros, your XYZ deck was all those, yeah. Just for cards that reference each other, yep. and then, yeah. Okay. No, that's really good to know, and it's nice to see that you know with these categories, you're still able to balance that around a regular schedule for both personal life and then travel to both make buys and sales, and then you know in your office. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I mentioned before the question, this is going to be the end of part one of two. Uh, thank you, thank you guys for listening. Uh, we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter. I am at Halt. I am Reptar. You are at Misplay on Twitter, and do you stream on Twitch anymore? Uh, well, I'm looking to get started again. It's been tough with the aforementioned winter sadness. Yes, and also the business, so I imagine it's difficult to get in there and do that. Definitely, yeah. Okay. But I will be hopefully streaming real soon on Twitch, same handle as Twitter. All right, everybody, we'll see you next week. Bye.